It's exhausting. We're exhausted. Let's get back to normal. That's the slogan. That would be nice. Good luck with that, Mr. Marr. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast in Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. On Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution, uh, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com in anything but normal times, despite the uh, prayers of Bill Maher there in the open quote. Yeah, that's Wouldn't the truth. that be nice? Back <laughs> to normal. Yeah, it would be. Well, um, Trump, Donald Trump, you've heard of him. Uh, he was on a, a Twitter rampage. He has been on a Twitter rampage since the firing of FBI director, FBI deputy director, I should say, Andrew McCabe, late on Friday night along with turning his ire on Twitter back against fired FBI director James Comey, and then for the first time, at least on Twitter by name, against special counsel Robert Mueller. Now, I take no joy, and I believe Desi Doyen can confirm this, (laughs) no joy whatsoever in covering Donald Trump's idiotic tweets. This is true. I can vouch for that. Yes, I know you can. But it is news, uh, frankly, because uh, the whole of U.S. government at this point now turns on Donald Trump's Twitter feed. I know it should not be that way. I know I wish it wasn't that way. But in fact, it is that way. Indeed, the whole of global geopolitics turns on uh, this idiot's uh, Twitter feed. Those tweets every day have a very direct effect on the national emergency that the country is now uh, finds itself in. So on yesterday's show, we we covered quite a bit of Trump's Twitter rampage against McCabe and Comey and Mueller. But what if I what if I was blocked by Donald Trump on Twitter? And frankly, while that sounds awesome, uh, (laughs) it would certainly make covering his presidency a hell of a lot more difficult. Uh, It would make it impossible to respond directly to his tweets if I wanted to do that and to otherwise take part in conversations in response to his tweets. Well, uh, seven people who have now blocked 
who have now been blocked, I should say, by Donald Trump on Twitter, are now suing him for that, charging that their First Amendment rights are being abridged by that blocking. We will be joined momentarily by one of the plaintiffs in that case who has been blocked by our incredibly thin-skinned president of the United States because he didn't like what she said, apparently. Uh, in, in one single tweet, by the way, she will be joining us shortly to discuss the recent hearing in that landmark landmark case. Also um, joining us in a little bit is our latest Green News report with yes. Desi Doyen. Yes, we'll be there. Uh, you haven't been blocked by Twitter. Have you been blocked by anybody that you know of at this point? Well, no, but I also haven't looked. All right. So I want I people to been... start blocking. <laughs> At Green News Report, just to show Desi Doyen what it's like. That it is possible to it be It is blocked. possible. I guess you're not obnoxious enough. By the way, Illinois is voting in its uh, 2018 midterm primaries on Tuesday. We will have noteworthy results and uh, any reported voting problems on tomorrow's show. But uh, first, let's uh, get right to this. Last week at... Gra- at um, Students at Great Mills High School in Maryland walked out of class as part of a student-led protest against school violence in the wake of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Today, it became their turn at Great Mills High School to experience the horror themselves in the uh, in what is apparently the 17th school shooting just since the beginning of 2018, since the beginning of this year. Two students were shot by a fellow student today, shortly before uh, classes started. This time it was a 17-year-old with a handgun instead of a 19-year-old with a semi-automatic rifle. The two victims were a 16-year-old female student who is in critical condition with life-threatening injuries at this hour and a 14-year-old male student, 14 years old, who was said to be in stable condition. The shooter died after a confrontation with a school resource officer who reportedly fired once at the shooter who, according to the sheriff, also fired his gun at about the same time. So it remains unclear whether the officer took down the shooter or whether the shooter shot himself. We don't know at this time. Um, So that's what happened in uh, Maryland today to start off the day for those uh, school kids. Those school kids who had uh, been protesting to do something about the gun violence. Meanwhile, something has been done about the gun violence down in Florida, at least a little bit. A Broward County judge granted Florida's first order temporarily removing guns from a person under the state's new gun control laws. Last week, four firearms and 267 rounds of ammo were ordered removed from a 56-year-old man from Lighthouse Point in Florida. He was determined to be a potential risk to himself or others under new gun legislation passed in the weeks following the massacre in Florida. The uh, massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, which claimed the lives of 17 people. Uh, Law enforcement was granted power to act on evidence that an individual may pose a danger. Well, there's an idea. The bill was signed into law by A-plus NRA-rated Florida Governor Rick Scott. It also places several restrictions on purchasing firearms, including raising the minimum age to purchase a firearm to 21 years old and extending the waiting period before uh, one can buy any weapon to three days. 
after the bill was signed. Of course, the National Rifle Association immediately filed a lawsuit against Florida, suing them over some aspects of the law, including the legality of banning guns, um, gun sales to, to, uh, to people under the age of 21. Nonetheless, the law was passed after an extensive lobbying effort by the students of the uh, Parkland High School who were pushing for even more aggressive measures. The man uh, who uh, had his uh, guns removed has not been publicly identified by name uh, due to his health concerns, but he was taken to a hospital for involuntary psychiatric treatment under the state's Baker Act. That's a different law which allows law enforcement to involuntarily institutionalize those who are determined to be a potential risk to themselves or others. According to Lighthouse Point Police, they were called to perform a welfare check on this man who was uh, said to be behaving erratically. He had turned off the main electrical breakers to his condominium building and told officers that, quote, he was being targeted and burglarized by the Federal Bureau of Investigations and a neighbor who lives in his building. That, according to the judge who wrote the order, the judge said uh, that the man could not describe the neighbor, but that the neighbor can, quote, shapeshift. Oh, dear. He can change heights. And I'm not sure where he comes from, the man said. And he said, to be honest, he looks like Osama bin Laden. So police officers uh, had also found evidence that the man had a uh, a voluminous amount of notes containing numerous references to former President Barack Obama, according to the judge, claiming that uh, the man thought uh, Obama had been killed in the 1980s, but came back and now murders children to place their spirits into the man's head. Also that Obama is a a member of Al Qaeda and is this uh, individual's enemy, according to the judge. So uh, I read all of this because, you know, why a why would the police want to be able to rob this poor man of his Second Amendment rights, constitutional rights to own as many guns as he wants and as much ammo as he wants? It's an outrage, isn't it? Go get him, NRA. Uh, During the uh, welfare check, officers spotted three pistols that the man owned and a shotgun and 267 rounds of ammunition. Under Florida's new law, they were allowed to confiscate those weapons. I know it seems crazy, NRA, that, uh, you know, this man who thinks that uh, Barack Obama was killed and came back as a member of Al-Qaeda. I know that's crazy that uh, any court should be allowed to order this man's guns to be taken away from him. But yes, as required by the new law, authorities uh, must uh, now notify state and federal law enforcement about this so that the issue will be flagged in gun background check databases if the man attempts to purchase a gun in the future. At least if he does does so through a licensed dealer because of the existing background check loophole, the man would, would still be able to legally purchase weapons at gun shows and purchase them online once he's at least out of the psychiatric ward in any event. So not all hope is lost for him, thank God. Before the uh, new law was passed just uh, two weeks ago, officials who attempted to remove guns from a person like this that they thought was a danger to himself or others until the law was passed in Florida. uh, An officer 
uh, who who did this, who removed this, who took away this man's guns, could be fined up to $5,000 for doing so. The Lighthouse Point police chief uh, told the Orlando Sentinel that I think this is what the general public has been looking for, for law enforcement to be able to intervene in these kind of situations for a long time. I think that uh, police chief... Ross Lakata is correct about that. Oh, definitely. Meanwhile, over at the uh, NRA's uh, favorite pretend news site, Breitbart, they had a totally different take on all of this. Quote, it begins. Florida's residents, Florida residents, firearms, ammunition confiscated under gun control law. That was the headline over at Breitbart with no reference, by the way, in the story to the judge's findings about the man thinking that his uh, ghost neighbor looks like Osama bin Laden or that Barack Obama is coming back from the dead to join Al Qaeda. That wasn't mentioned over there at Breitbart. Of course, they would probably call it fake news. So that's why they. They didn't report these facts as found in a court of law. So uh, that's actually some moderately good news coming out of the state of Florida. Yeah. How often do you hear that? Not often, except for, you know, all the folks who read Breitbart News who have no idea what actually happened. But other than yet, yeah. Oh, no, the, the gun grabbers are taking over. As They're, far as Breitbart is concerned. That's right. That's right. T- it begins. <sighs> Meanwhile, uh, let's see, down in Texas... A fifth, a now fifth explosion in the great state of Texas in the dawning hours of Tuesday morning. uh, Rocked folks at a FedEx facility outside of San Antonio. This uh, package, the fifth explosion, uh, was uh, a package that was seemingly bound for Austin. It has further heightened area concerns that a serial bomber is behind a series of deadly attacks in the area, according to Think Progress. According to the San Antonio Police Department, a package bomb headed for Austin exploded at a FedEx distribution center in Schertz, Texas. Around 12.25 a.m., it caused, thankfully, only minor injuries. The parcel reportedly blasted nails and shrapnel out when it exploded. Law enforcement indicated that the package appeared to also have been sent from Austin. So it came from Austin. I guess it went up to San Antonio. and Through then it routing. Was, down yeah, to San Antonio. Coming back to Austin. The explosion came little more than a day after a fourth bomb had rocked the Texas Capitol. On Sunday night, two men were injured while passing a roadside package bomb. Uh, apparently, it was a tr- they triggered a tripwire that had been attached to it. The uh, Austin police chief said, we are clearly dealing with what we expect to be a serial bomber. The first bombings killed two people in addition to injuring two others. The bombs left at homes in Austin's historically segregated and lower-income east, uh, east side seemed to target Latino and black residents. Both of the victims killed came from prominent black families that have a long history and go to the same church. According to uh, Nelson Linder, who heads the local NAACP chapter. So um, despite the uh, string of bombings, the president of the United States until today, the string of bombings started back in uh, beginning of March, March 2nd. But until today, Donald Trump had yet to say anything about these bombings, not even a tweet, no statement at all from the White House until today, almost three weeks 
Uh, three weeks, yeah. Uh, three weeks uh, since the uh, first package bomb exploded back on March 2nd and uh, the murder of these two black members of the Austin community. According to AP today, uh, in, uh, in Washington, President Donald Trump said the assailant behind the bombing is, quote, very sick. These were the first remarks he's made about this during an Oval Office meeting Tuesday with Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Trump described the situation in Texas as terrible. Quote, this is obviously a very sick individual or individuals and authorities are, quote, working to get to the bottom of it. That was it. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, she tweeted that uh, POTUS mourns for victims of the recent bombings in Austin. We are monitoring the situation. We are committed to bringing perpetrators of these heinous acts to justice. There is no apparent nexus to terrorism at this time. No apparent nexus to terrorism. Uh, I guess it was just for fun that all of these packages are terrorizing uh, the city of Austin. Someone is obviously sending packages meant to terrify and terrorize the Austin community in general. And uh, based on the first three packages that uh, blew up that uh, had been delivered before exploding, they targeted minority communities. Two of the victims uh, of the first three bombings were black. The third was Hispanic. That sure sounds like terrorism to me. But, of course, the bomber didn't write uh, the words, you know, Allahu Akbar on the packages before sending them, apparently. So with no terrorism. It wasn't terrorism because it didn't have to do with Muslim extremists. Well, yeah, if only ISIS had uh, claimed responsibility, then perhaps then, they would pay attention to right. it. Right. Then they'd pay attention to it. Then Donald Trump would have been outraged about it. But uh, luckily, in this case, no terrorism. We have got to redefine our laws. I mean, if that's what this is about, if, you know, we can only call it terrorism if someone in the Middle East or someone uh, who has pledged allegiance to uh, Muslim extremism, if that's the only thing that now qualifies as terrorism, we need to change our laws. But, you know, no terrorism. So good. No need to go to war with yet another nation. We don't have to bomb Iran at this time. Oh, that's good. You know, had it said Allahu Akbar, we uh, Donald Trump would be, take to Twitter and uh, declare war somebody. on Iran. Yeah. yeah. Also, no, neither, no need to further crack down on immigrants. That's good. No need to worry, even though the exact same situation had Arabic writing been on those packages would have resulted in congressional hearings, uh, a call for more defense spending, a series of angry I called it tweets by Donald Trump, the president of the United States and still further crackdowns on law abiding immigrants, as we have seen. So, uh, oh, I don't know. Maybe we're lucky as a fifth package explodes in Texas. Now, the reason that I know, by the way, that Donald Trump hasn't tweeted anything about the incident is because I'm able to go check his Twitter feed to make sure. The reason that I was able to report, as we did last Friday, on Wyoming uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the torturer-in-chief Dick Cheney's daughter, when she had argued uh, falsely in favor of U.S. torture as having saved lives as she was advocating for Donald Trump's new nominee to the uh, to head the CIA, Gina Haspel. 
who oversaw U.S. torture and secret U.S. prisons in 2002 before overseeing the destruction of videotaped evidence of that war crime. The only reason that I was able to report what Liz Cheney said was because someone else sent me her tweeted comments. Yes, for some reason, Dick Cheney's daughter, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, blocks me from reading her tweets or from responding directly to her misinformation. She was responding uh, in that case uh, to a tweet from John McCain, who was actually uh, actually was tortured as a prisoner of war in Vietnam when he he had tweeted in response to Gina Haspel's nomination. The torture of detainees in U.S. custody during the last decade was one of the darkest chapters in American history. The Senate must do its job in scrutinizing the record and involvement of Gina Haspel in this disgraceful program. And Liz Cheney falsely tweeted in response, quote, The enhanced interrogation program saved lives, prevented attacks, and produced intel that led to Osama bin Laden, all of which are actually lies. I understand she wants to protect her father, who's a war criminal, but she was tweeting lies, and I wanted you to know about that. But I could only report that to you because someone else was kind enough to share it with me since I couldn't see it on Twitter because she blocks me. Should public officials be able to block the public from seeing what they tweet and from being able to communicate with them in response? Doesn't that violate First Amendment protections, especially for journalists? So what about when the person doing the blocking is the president of the United States? Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with a journalist and an attorney who is suing the president of the United States for doing exactly that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yes, back down to Alabama for a moment here. At the very end of last year, just after the U.S. Senate special election in Alabama, listeners may recall that I reported on a bizarre incident that happened on Twitter between myself and John Merrill, the Republican Secretary of State of Alabama. There had been a, uh, a legal battle in court just before the contentious race between accused Republican teen molester and former state Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore and his opponent, Democratic prosecutor Doug Jones, in that U.S. Senate special election. Of course, Doug Jones eventually won the race in uh, deeply red Alabama. Just prior to the election, however, Some election integrity advocates went to court to try and force the state to essentially flip a switch on the state's paper ballot optical scan computer systems to turn on a feature that preserves the photographic ballot images that are created when paper ballots are scanned by those systems. It is those scans which are actually used to tabulate 
results in these elections, and the election transparency experts had argued that federal law requires the state to preserve those images as part of the election materials for 22 months after an election. They had also hoped to be able to use those ballot images, those digital ballot images, to to try and oversee the vote tallies, since state law in Alabama and pretty much everywhere else makes it damn near impossible for the public to examine actual paper ballots to determine whether the computer the computer reported tallies from those ballots are actually accurate in any way shape or form in response to the legal case a, a state court ordered Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill to instruct counties before the election to turn that feature on on the optical scan uh, computer systems, which uh, includes most of the systems in the state, allowed those uh, those systems to preserve those ballot images. But on the night before that much anticipated and very closely watched U.S. Senate race, Merrill went by himself without the plaintiffs even being notified to the state Supreme Court and got a ruling from that court that stayed the lower court's ruling so those ballot images would not be preserved by those computers for possible public oversight after the election. It's easier to make digital ballot images available for the public to examine on their own via a website than to to make the actual paper ballots available, obviously. At some point after the election and during the holidays, while I was actually taking a few days off, John Merrill, the Secretary of State, went on Twitter and responded to a comment that I had made about this entire situation and uh, that it was, uh, I think I was saying that it was outrageous that Alabama didn't simply turn on this feature and that the state had actually gone to the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, without the plaintiffs even being notified about it. Well, John Merrill jumped into the Twitter conversation to claim that Alabama's optical scanners quote, do not capture or preserve digital ballot images. Now, I knew because I report on this stuff that he was entirely wrong. Uh, You would think he would know that, too. He's the secretary of state. But I I know that the machines that are used across much of the state of uh, of Alabama, the ESNS DS 200s, do exactly that. Yes, they do capture and preserve digital ballot images. And in fact, the election vendor, ESNS, admits as much on their website. So I asked the Secretary of State to confirm that he was really saying that his systems did not capture ballot images. I was very polite about it. I called him Mr. Secretary, etc. But after telling me uh, repeatedly that I was incorrect and after uh, trying to my trying to challenge his original statements very politely, Uh, which he was completely misinforming the public about, I attempted to very politely correct him, but he was having none of it, and he eventually blocked me entirely on Twitter. At that point, my job as a journalist who covers these sorts of things became much more difficult. I could no longer follow the Alabama Secretary of State anymore on Twitter. And it was even difficult for me to go back and and copy uh, or take screenshots of his comments to report them on air about all of this or to share them with the legal team who had uh, requested them. The folks who were suing the state of Alabama over this, uh, they wanted copies of this as part of their ongoing court case. Merrill had also blocked others on Twitter. For example, the well-respected election law expert Rick Hassan. He was blocked. Uh, from being able to read Merrill's account after Hassan had the temerity to point out that 
Merrill had apparently been wrong about the state's recount statutes during an appearance on CNN on election night of that special election in the U.S. Senate. Rather than correct the record, Merrill simply blocked Rick Hassan from following or responding to his Twitter feed. He had blocked others as well, I would uh, later learn, including Josh Douglas, a law professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who specializes in election law, voting rights, constitutional law, etc. Douglas joined us on the show at the time to talk about it and charged that Merrill uses his personal Twitter account to correspond with the public about issues that are relevant to his office and thus should not be able to block the public from viewing it or responding to it. Of course, the Secretary of State of Alabama is not the only public official who does this. Uh, many others do as well. Um, and in fact, I'm also blocked by, for some reason, by people like Fox News's Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. Even Sarah Palin, for some reason, blocks me on Twitter. All of which makes my work, as much as I'm happy not to see their nonsense, frankly, it makes it more difficult as a journalist. But those folks are not public officials like the Secretary of State of Alabama or like the President of the United States. This past week, President Donald Trump announced a huge shakeup in his administration, and he did it via his personal Twitter account, at RealDonaldTrump. He announced he was removing the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, from office. He was moving the CIA director, Mike Pompeo, over to become the, secret the new Secretary of State, and he was promoting renowned torturer and current deputy director of the CIA, Gina Haspel, to become the new CIA chief. That was official business. As uh, Tillerson stated at the time, he was not informed that he had been fired until it was announced by the president on Trump's infamous personal Twitter account. So what if you're a journalist who was blocked by the president of the United States from reading his tweets? Could you still do your job as a journalist? And for that matter, what if a regular old citizen was blocked by the president from reading his tweets and therefore from being able to respond to them and take place in the public forum on Twitter in response to the president of the United States? Is that even legal for a public official, much less for the president? Is it constitutional? Can the president of the United States block a U.S. citizen from being able to read his pronouncements on his infamous Twitter account? Or does that violate those citizens' First Amendment rights? Last summer, the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University sued Donald Trump on behalf of seven citizen plaintiffs for having blocked them on Twitter from reading or replying to his at real Donald Trump Twitter account. Last week, oral arguments were heard in a federal courthouse in the Southern District of New York on this case, and one of the plaintiffs, the lead named plaintiff, I believe, Rebecca Buckwalter Poza is both a journalist and an attorney. She's a regular contributor to Pacific Standard on law and politics. She's a judicial affairs editor at Daily Coast, where she wrote about the case um, shortly after the, hear the recent hearing. She has also contributed to Democracy Journal, The Nation, The Atlantic, Politico, The Daily Beast, CNN, and NPR, and... She joins us now to talk about this fascinating case. Rebecca Buckwalter-Posa, welcome to the broadcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you joining us here. Uh, First, before we get into this case uh, and what happened at the hearing recently, why did Donald Trump block you, Rebecca? What did you do to upset the president? (laughs) Uh, It turns out the president really doesn't like it when you suggest that Russia was involved in the uh, 2016 election. So he tweeted something about, you know, having won the White House. Mm-hmm. And all I did was, was quote that and say, to be fair, you didn't win it. Russia won it for you. That was it. A simple comment. You didn't win it. Yep. Russia won it for you. Yep. No obscenities, no threats, no, you know, absolutely nothing more than a reference to Russia's involvement in the election. Now, you weren't, uh, even though you weren't impolite, uh, you weren't even as polite. I mean, I wasn't challenging the uh, Secretary of State of Alabama. I was sort of trying to get him on record as far as how his election system worked. But polite or not, uh, are you arguing, uh, you and the Knight Institute, that this is actually a First Amendment matter? And if so, does would would politeness even matter in a case like this, even if you weren't so polite? <laughs> well, you know, the other side, the Department of Justice is representing the president here. Uh, they've conceded that it's it's viewpoint discrimination, which is the legal term for when you are, you know, in this case, blocking someone from Twitter because you don't like what they're saying, and there's there's no other justification. It's just the content. It's a criticism. Um, so yeah, that that definitely violates my First Amendment rights. Uh, they admitted it. They admitted as much that, uh, in fact, the people who had been blocked were blocked because the the president or whoever is running his Twitter account didn't like what was what what you were saying. Yes, and um, you know it would have been a different case and a, a much longer case if they tried to argue that there were some valid reason for blocking us, you know, mm-hmm. a threat or something of that nature, but they did not. So w- why is any of this a problem for you? I mean, why does it, uh, how does it impact your First Amendment rights to, uh, to, to free speech? Boy, let me count the ways. Um, you know, as a journalist, it's, it, it, there's, there's the immediate effect of, as you pointed out with Merrill, not being able to follow not being able to engage other people, not being able to respond. Mm -hmm. To put it in First Amendment terms, though, I mean, I have a right to be part of this public forum, to engage other people, um, and to be heard, to have my point of view heard. Um, And and I have a right to to try and catch the president's attention. Unfortunately, in this case, I did, but his response was to block me instead of to respond. The uh, defense, you write, uh, tried to analogize uh, Twitter to a conference at at which the president could simply walk away. In other words, he doesn't have to hear from you, Rebecca, and your snide comments about Russia. He can simply uh, choose to walk away as if uh, you guys were at a conference and he said, oh, I'm done, I'm leaving. Um, The Knight Institute attorney, however, pointed out that the degree of control that the president exercises here is far greater and the blocking is more like standing at the door to decide who gets to partake in the conference. Well, doesn't the president also have the right to decide who attends such a conference? I mean, I'm I'm not sure how far this analogy works or that it works to begin with, but what I'll say is when you're president and you've chosen to make something a public forum. This is why the conference analogy doesn't quite work to me as a mm-hmm. plaintiff, commenting mm-hmm. only as a plaintiff. Mm-hmm. This is about, you know, this is about a town hall more than it is about a conference. Um, and he has decided to just shut out one side 
uh, and that gives this distorted notion of, you know, what's going on and what the debate is and what people's views are to anyone who's following him in addition to, you know, making making his Twitter experience more pleasing, presumably. Does the... Um there are legitimate reasons that I think uh, uh, were agreed to by the uh, defense and the uh, plaintiff. And by the way, you, you mentioned that the DOJ, this is the Department of Justice, is defending him here, right? We, we he, he's The president is being represented by the DOJ. We have to pay for his defense in this case? <laughs> I, I mean, that's right. That's where the DOJ gets its money, and that's who's defending Trump, so... Okay. Logically, that sounds right. Uh, it sounds right. It kind of sounds outrageous, but all right. Uh, so <laughs> it sounds wrong, but the logic is is solid in terms of your uh, inference about who's putting the bill. Right. Okay. So, uh, the, so the plaintiff and the, the defense, uh, you detail in your article at Daily Coast on this, stipulated to a number of uh, facts before the hearing. Uh, and one of them, if I understand it, uh, is that there are legitimate reasons, not including that he doesn't like what you have to say, but there are legitimate reasons that that the president could legitimately block someone. I mean, this is what I what I anticipated when I first went on. The only thing that gave me a second pause was the notion or the, the prospect of people just digging through everything I've ever done online, looking for a good reason that I should be blocked from mm-hmm. the president's account, you know, and I just remember one conversation or someone just said, you really don't even use profanity. I think that, I think that you used one word once, but it was in reference to trade with China. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, they could have argued that there was uh, some compelling concern. There's not a lot there was, you know, look through, any of the seven accounts uh, for us named plaintiffs, but they could have tried to make that argument. Uh, now, the reason they didn't, mm-hmm. I strongly suspect, again, speaking as a plaintiff, is that they didn't want to be exposed to scrutiny on their side. They did not want uh, the president to receive letters demanding information. They did not want Scavino to be deposed. Uh, Scavino, his uh, social uh, media director, I guess. And so they wanted to avoid any kind of discovery as much as they could in this case. But legitimately, had you made a threat, for example, or had you used uh, expletives, I guess that would uh, th- that was agreed that that would be a legitimate reason to to to, to block a Twitter follower. Oh, I don't know that that was in the stipulation. In fact, I just know that that's what what I had thought is uh-huh. that they were going to argue. Um, they, they just didn't even try. They just conceded. Uh, and it, it's shocking to me, right? This is the president of the United States. They just conceded that the president blocked citizens because he didn't like what they had to say. Did they try to argue in any uh, case that this was uh, that he can do this because this is his personal account? This is real Donald at real Donald Trump, as opposed to his official uh, Twitter account, which is at POTUS. Was did that come up in the hearing? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's one of the issues that uh, that people are going to engage. I I think personally that he's really uh, weakened their case. He's undermined it himself. He being. Trump by mm-hmm. saying this is my official account, by doing things like firing Rex Tillerson via Twitter right. uh, and announcing you know things for the first time. The DOJ, I believe, is keeping his tweets as a record, and the White House acknowledges them as a formal communication from the president. So I'm not sure what they could come up with 
that would be that persuasive uh, with respect to trying to distance him from this being an official account. Now, we're not yet at the uh, trial phase here, I guess. This uh, this court hearing recently was, uh, I guess, uh, summary ju- plaintiffs hoping for summary judgment on their behalf and the defense trying to get the case tossed out uh, entirely on uh, on, on uh, jurisdictional grounds? Is that where where this uh, hearing began? Sure. I mean, I think that they had a couple of layers. Of, they'd, they'd love the, the case to disappear, and then after that, they'd love to have the judge rule for them outright. Uh, so what happened next was actually just the judge ruled, mm-hmm. and she you know, said something to the effect of, I've, I have a couple of things ahead, but I'll be ruling timely in this. Uh, unless there's some intervening settlement. Inter- I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit there. Intervening settlement, you said? Right. Okay. And uh, she had apparently, you, you describe, Rebecca, a bunch of questions that she asked to both the uh, defendants and the plaintiffs about this. Sounds like she read up on Twitter and understood it uh, very well. Is, is that the impression you walked away with? I was really, really impressed. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I clerked, right? I've worked for judges, and I know how, um, you know, tricky it can be. You're presented with an issue you have no familiarity with. She absolutely knew Twitter, you know, knew things about Twitter, knew in depth um, what Twitter means and for the people who use it and how it works. And that was incredibly impressive to me. And it came down then to, um, well, when we're talking about constitutional rights, because that's what you guys are arguing, that your First Amendment rights are are being denied here. And you're an attorney, so you probably understand this more than me. But for listeners uh, who think that, you know, constitutional rights are absolute, you absolutely cannot deny a constitutional right. That's not true. You can, for example, we always use the example of uh, the First Amendment right. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater, as they say. So there are certain reasons your rights can be, uh, your constitutional rights can be taken away. But help me understand this, Rebecca. Uh, when doing so, the government can do so, but they must do so in the least restrictive way possible. Is that right? I, I believe so. Again, I'm, I am, you know, on my best behavior is only a plaintiff in this case. Okay. I would love to be back on when I can speak as a lawyer, um, but, but in this case, I'm a plaintiff. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what I understand the case now to, to come down to in any event in this uh, potential settlement, because the judge found that if, in fact, Donald Trump, he doesn't have to hear from you. But he does have to allow uh, you to uh, read his tweets and uh, to participate in conversation about his tweets on Twitter. Is that is that the sense you were getting from the so, from the hearing? I'd say, I mean, first, I don't think that anyone's, you know, tackled whether or not he has to hear from us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what what the answer is, that's what we're trying to decide right now. But the three main issues that the the case is coming down to because they conceded that they just didn't like what we had to say is whether or not the court can hear this case and order relief, right? Can this Mm -hmm. judge tell the president what to do or tell the president's subordinates what to do? Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's a threshold question. The second one is, is this Twitter account a public forum? 
Uh, and I think that, you know, more so than anything that revolves around how it's used. Um, but, you know, that's just my perception. Finally, it's, it's a question of whether it's an official action when the president or whomever tweets using that account. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think these are the three questions now that are, that are going to decide how this comes out. And she will, the judge here, uh, Judge uh, uh, Buckwalter, I think I have it right. <laughs> judge Buckwald, and Buckwald. I, I like that name. Fine <laughs> thank name. you. Well, that's it's your Buckwalter. name. <laughs> Buckwald, right. Thank you. Um, so she's going to come out with a uh, decision unless there is a settlement. And there was one point that seems to have been brought up that might lead at this point to a settlement, and that is the use you don't if i don't like something uh rebecca has to say on on twitter because of we all know of her uh dirty mouth and uh, all sorts of attack, i i don't have to just block you there's another thing i can do which is called muting you which means that i don't see your tweets but you still get to see mine and you get to reply to them and participate in conversations with others about them if I have muted you, right? Did, was that something that came up here as a possible solution to this mess? It, it did come up. And, you know, it's a lot less restrictive than blocking, of course. Uh, but it would be very, very surprising if the government were open to that as a compromise position. It would pretty much require them to concede their case. Uh, because I think it, you have to unblock someone to mute them, right? Mm-hmm. So you would you would be unblocked, and then you would be muted, and he would have to go through and do this with everybody that he blocked. Uh, so no, any sense at this point? We, we wouldn't. We won't even officially get to the constitutional issues here, I presume, unless a case that this trial actually moves forward in the future, and that could be prevented if there is a settlement. Do you have any sense at this point? Are settlement talks ongoing, or do you see this uh, case moving to trial, Rebecca? Uh, so, I mean, unless there's a settlement, she'll just rule on the stipulation and on the brief she's received, is mm-hmm. my understanding. So this is sort of, um, if there's no settlement, it'll just be a ruling. I, I have no idea what's happening with um, with the, you know, the, the counsel in this case over settling. I mean, I can tell you what my personal feelings are on mooting, which is that you know, no, that's not the same thing as the restoration of my First Amendment rights. Um, but this is like, you know, a developing story, so to speak. So you're not sure if they offered you that as a solution, you're not sure you would take it uh, as a, a settlement at this point? It's it's less restrictive. It's, you know, interesting. But personally, I'm I'm not that enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Well, it is a brave new world uh, in this collision between free speech and new technology, and I'm uh, looking forward to what happens. I hope you'll stay in touch with us, Rebecca, um, if only so that I can uh, use the information to try to convince the Secretary of State of (laughs) Alabama to let me follow his Twitter account again. Rebecca Buckwalter Poza, you can find her work uh, at Pacific Standard and, of course, over at Daily Coast, where she wrote uh, about all of this. I sued Donald Trump for blocking me on Twitter. Here's what happened next. We will link to that. You can also find her work at her personal website, buckwalterposa.com, and on the Twitters, unless she blocks you, at rpbp. Rebecca, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You bet.
All right, a quick break, and we are back. Desi Doyen, you are on deck uh, with some bizarre, bizarre winter weather that continues to pummel the U.S. Uh, We'll get to that and more in our latest Green News report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Hey! Happy spring! (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Spring has sprung, or at least it's the first day of spring. Yep, astronomical spring, but not necessarily feeling like that for a lot of people in the country. No, not around a lot of places in the country. It is also the sixth anniversary. Six-month anniversary. Thank you. Six-month anniversary of Hurricane Maria. Yes. Down in Puerto Rico. How's it going? Oh, it's not going well. However, it is better than it was. How about that? There has been some improvement. Uh, About uh, 90-something thousand people are still without power, but uh, they are still, of course, suffering, and they are still in a humanitarian emergency down there in Puerto Rico, and they still need money, and they still need FEMA, and they still need our assistance, and they still need our attention. Uh, and yeah, almost a hundred thousand without power six months right. after this. I, I can't imagine had that happened to a, a a major city on the mainland or any city on the mainland had that happened yeah. uh, that we wouldn't be talking about it six months later. But we're barely talking about uh, Puerto Rico now. All all of these months later, as these people are still struggling. Uh, anyway. Um, just wanted to note that since it's not being noted uh, pretty much anywhere else. All right, let's get to it. Other than that, our latest Green News report. Inside the Trump administration's newly unveiled sanctions against Russia is a startling accusation. FBI warns Russian hackers attacked the U.S. power grid and critical infrastructure systems. As storms get stronger, building codes are getting weaker. FEMA's flood maps dramatically understate flood risk for 41 million Americans. Plus, Trump's FEMA has deleted all mention of climate change from their strategic plans. Because if you don't mention it often enough, it doesn't exist. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Because whether it be fossil fuels or calling the president a moron. We know Rex Tillerson likes it crude. 
Well, he used to. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the good news? Winter is now officially over. Yes, that's good. But not the extreme winter weather. Uh, A tornado tore through Jacksonville, Alabama on Monday night, causing what is uh, being described as significant damage. Unclear on the full amount of damage or the injury toll at this hour, but reports suggest there have been much of both. Meanwhile, as the southeast gets pummeled, the northeast is battening down its hatches yet again for another, its fourth, fourth nor'easter of the season and meteorologists are predicting a fifth one for this weekend so wow yeah you know when they had two in a row you and i both agreed back-to-back nor'easters not that unheard of but back to back to back to back to back maybe we got a real problem here yeah the frequency of these storms is really what officials should be paying attention to because it hasn't given communities much time to recover or to restore their electricity and as if to underscore the importance of being prepared for climate impacts a new study released on Monday from the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety concludes that states are ignoring warnings from the insurance industry and federal scientists and are failing to upgrade their building codes to withstand the higher risk of of extreme weather events. Bloomberg News reports that despite the increasing severity and cost of natural disasters, real estate developers are succeeding in lobbying state legislatures to relax building codes and regulations. Mm. That's with help from local officials who are seeking to increase home sales that also increase property tax revenue, even though the trend leaves residents more vulnerable to climate impacts. Get money the hell out of politics and so many of our problems are immediately solved. On top of that, another new report concludes that FEMA's flood maps that identify flood-prone areas in the U.S. are actually wildly outdated and dramatically understate the actual flood risk. Fantastic. University of Bristol researchers working with the Environmental Protection Agency and other organizations estimate that 41 million Americans are at high risk of 100-year floods. That's three times more people than the current estimates. That means that many homeowners are likely likely underinsured against floods right now. The researchers say the process of drawing FEMA's patchwork of flood maps is extremely long and extremely complicated, and it uses past data, not forward-looking data, and it relies in part on local input that can be influenced by political considerations. For example, Florida alone has about $700 billion worth of real estate located in those 100-year floodplains. As global warming intensifies the severity of extreme weather events, President Trump's FEMA, which is responsible for dealing with the aftermath of disasters like hurricanes and floods, has removed all mention of climate change from its four-year strategic plan. That's despite the fact that increased hurricanes, flooding, heat waves, wildfires, drought, and sea level rise are all scientifically linked to climate change. In the document, FEMA actually admits that, quote, disaster costs are expected to continue to increase due to rising natural hazard risk, but it doesn't say what might be causing those risks to rise. Who knows? It's a huge shift from the Obama administration, FEMA, which in its long-term disaster plans repeatedly focused on the need to incorporate and prepare for increased climate risks. 
Finally, officials with the Department of Homeland Security and Federal Bureau of Investigation last Thursday accused Russian hackers of infiltrating crucial infrastructure systems like energy and water in both the U.S. and Europe. The report is the first time the Trump administration has officially named Russia as the source of the hack attacks and alleges that starting in 2016, hackers linked to Russian intelligence agencies targeted and in some cases successfully infiltrated computers that control U.S. nuclear power plants, electric plants, water and aviation systems. The DHS report says that the hackers did not go so far as to sabotage or shut off any power plants, but that they could have at will. Things are going very, very well, aren't they? They sure are. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. It's getting better all the time. Getting better. Uh, well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> I guess that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, um, yeah there was just one quick follow-up to yeah. the story about the uh, uh, hacking intrusions into the U.S. electric grid. It's it's something that um, is really important to understand. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, they did a study a couple of years ago, and they found that knocking out just nine critical electric grid substations around the United States could trigger a national blackout that could last for weeks. They said this is unlikely and it would require physical attacks, not necessarily just cyber attacks, but nine critical substations could lead to a national blackout. Just want to get that out there. Well, if they do it in Puerto Rico, uh, nobody will care. True. Right? All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. My uh, thanks also to my guest today, Rebecca Buckwalter-Poza. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. Always happy to hear from folks at bradcast at bradblog.com. And also, uh, <laughs> for those of you who haven't blocked me on Twitter, uh, please, uh, or that I haven't blocked you. Actually, I don't <laughs> ever block anybody. So, yeah. I, I don't. Uh, anyway. You can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. Uh, my thanks as ever to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you can afford. It is greatly appreciated. It is the only thing that keeps us on your public airwaves. So thank you for stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, oh, oh.